This is Burt Reynolds. You listen to Wiener's Barbecue, and they're not giving me a damn thing for this. Once while traveling across the sky, this lovely planet called mine. close by And now I'm caught here till I die Until we change to peaceful men and we'll return into the sky until we
Um, welcome, everybody, to Wiener's Barbecue here on 101.9 FM CITR Radio, uh, Vancouver, Canada, every Tuesday from 5 to 6 p.m. Um, we are going to be doing interviews today. Um, coming up on the show today, we are going to have with us um, Dan Jones. Um, you, heard, you may not ever have heard of that name, but if he's ever seen Pan Lambert. Pan's Lambert, excuse me. Uh, Hellboy being another movie that he appeared in. He's the guy in uh, Pan's Lambert. Pale Man. A, he played Pan, the guy with the crazy horn coming out of his head. And B, he also played Pale Man, who was the guy, if you ever saw that really cool movie, he was the guy with the eyeballs coming out of his hands. You know, very cool. Um, also on the show today, uh, celebrity photographer. Uh, if you are a photographer out there or you want to know about photography, uh, we have a man who has had a very successful career doing it. Greg Gorman uh, will be with us. He was in Vancouver to do some workshops about a month ago. Um, to start off, the, so that's going to be later on in the show. We'll see how it all plays out. Um, but to start it off today, we're going to have the president of this very university, UBC, uh, President Stephen Toop. Um, if you do listen to this show, you know that we did a lot uh, covering UBC and if they're going to go NCAA or not. Well, they didn't go. They stayed in the CIS and here to talk about where we're now going with UBC staying in the CS because he's taking on a big role. President Stephen Toop, and it's about a 13-minute interview here. It's a big deal for him because they go NCAA, you know, the athletic department's sort of taking the reins here, but he says one of the reasons we're going to stay in the CIS is we are going to drive change. So President Stephen Toop wants to make the CIS bigger. We'll just use that word, bigger than it is today, tiering scholarships. It's all in the interview. Without further ado, it's me and the president of this university, Stephen Toop. Um, here I am with uh, the president of university, Stephen Toop, uh, here to talk about UBC. Not necessarily not going in the NCAA, that's now in the past, but where we're going ahead with UBC staying in the CIS. Um, Mr. President, thank you so much for doing this. And you in your press conference said that the status quo in the CIS, when you said that UBC is going to stay, was unacceptable. That's right. So where do we stand now? So we're in the midst of uh, lots of discussions. Uh, you may know that there was a uh, working group uh, uh, created by Canada West. Uh, I'm co-chairing that with uh, an athletic director from another Western university. And uh, we've been charged with uh, taking a relook at competitive structure. Uh, first looking at Canada West, but the reality is as soon as you open that can of worms, uh, you're looking at competitive structure for CIS, and frankly, uh, you're implying a lot of other questions too, like the scholarship issue, which UBC's been concerned about for a long time. So we're in the midst of meetings. We've already had one meeting, which I hosted here at UBC, and we're about to have another meeting next week in Calgary, and uh, we're going to see what progress we can make on reform initiatives. Uh, you've mentioned that you want a Canada West tiered system. It's been something that's been talked about for years. Um, there's the five schools that are sort of spearheading it. You mentioned your press conference. You hope to have it done by 2012-13. Is that feasible? No. <laughs> what's, uh, what's become obvious is uh, that the planning around the scheduling is uh, simply too complex to get a complete revision by 2012-13. But what I hope we will be able to do is have the plan for how we're going to proceed, uh, certainly by 2012, so that by the time we're getting to 2013-2014, we can actually implement. I, uh, let me also say that there are a lot of parallel discussions going on, which you may know about. Uh, so in the midst of our discussions, there's also some work that uh, CIS is doing with Own the Podium, uh, which, of course, you know, has been instrumental in, in thinking about high-performance sport in Canada. So, quite frankly, there are a lot of moving pieces here, and right now, I couldn't predict exactly where this is going to land, but what I am feeling pretty confident about is that there is a wide recognition across the country that the current situation is not not only not ideal, but probably not even sustainable. Yes. I'd actually like to follow that up. When you say not sustainable, you're saying that if the CIS stays on the path that they've been on with the way they're running their sports over, say, the last, I'll just say 10 years, I'll throw out a number, this league is going to have major cutbacks in, say, the next decade? 
Uh, I don't know if it'll be major cutbacks. I suspect that there will be a number of institutions across the country that are going to feel that their interests are not best served by the current uh, arrangements with C- in, within CIS. And there are other people across the country who are worried that CIS is not meeting its mandate. Uh, I'll be very honest with you. Uh, if you look at what CIS says it wants to do, it says it wants to be the destination of choice for top Canadian scholar-athletes. And in my view, the current structure means that it won't be able to do that. Could we also say, is it the, can we say the top Canadian athletes or is it top Canadian athletes? Are we trying to get the best here? Yeah, we're trying to get the best. Uh, the best both in terms of their athletic prowess and, uh, uh, of course, we also want them to be committed students as well. Because that is a major statement, and that's obviously something that, especially with the mass media of today, you know, Canadian students are following the U.S. sporting system. And just an example, uh, Mark Trazzolini, he's going to be playing here with Santa Clara uh, September 9th. He's going to be playing against UBC's men bas- men's basketball team, Division One athlete. He didn't go to a big-time Division One school. He didn't go to Kentucky. He didn't go to Duke. He didn't go to UCLA. He went to what's called a mid-major, which I'm sure you've learned about, Santa Clara. How do we keep that player? Because that's a player we can compete for if we can build up a system. You're saying that is the goal here. That is the goal, yes. That is the goal. And what we're going to have to do is we're, we're going to have to obviously rethink uh, the uh, level of competition, and that goes to uh, how it is that we might have a kind of high-performance element within uh, either within CIS or within a different structure. Uh, but it also goes to the overall scholarship opportunities for uh, outstanding athletes. We, we currently are operating in a very, very restrictive environment, which it makes us very uncompetitive for a lot of top people. Now, some people choose to come here nonetheless. I mean, if you look at our swimming program, it's outstanding. We have Olympians in our swimming program. But there are many other programs where it's very, very hard to compete successfully. Um, also, you mentioned in your, pro- in your press conference you wanted to enhance scholarships. And that's one you, you said right off the top in your press conference, we've had less progress on scholarships in yeah. talking about with other CIS schools. Elaborate on that, and how can I not be pessimistic when I hear that statement? (laughs) Well, uh, so I said that we'd had less progress in part because we just hadn't had as many conversations as we had about the the tiering issue. But what's become clear to me, and look, I'm in a learning curve on all of this. Uh, It's not my background, and it's been very interesting for me to discover some of the complexities. What has become clear to me is that you can't deal with the question of competition level without dealing with the scholarship question. And uh, we are beginning to have more and more conversations around that scholarship question. It may turn out that the scholarship commitment becomes the leverage point for understanding the level of competition question. So, in other words, we might have to reverse the whole discussion. I don't know where this is going to go, quite frankly, but we may have to reverse the whole discussion and ask uh, universities across the country what their interests are in committing to change around scholarships and by teasing out who seems to be willing to change that dynamic, start to look at competitive structure from the perspective of scholarships. So, back to getting the top athletes here, is... Your goal in the end, because if you're going to compete with these American schools, because that's, you know, that's the reality of it, is it full ride? Is that what we're trying to get? Yeah, look, I don't have a very specific uh, plan in mind in terms of uh, what numbers of uh, full scholarships have to be available, but it does seem to me uh, that in the same way we offer full scholarships uh, for people for other purposes, leadership purposes, uh, academic, purely academic purposes, it's not, There's, in my view, there's nothing ethically wrong with imagine, imagining full-ride scholarships for athletes as long as they're also committed to uh, academic studies. And, uh, you know, there's no question in my mind that people across the country believe that those two things can be compatible. Um, You also said in your press conference it was a very difficult decision to come to this, and you said that you believe that the CIS is going to be in very... CIS is in very serious reform discussions. Um, I was critical in that you're going on promises here. Mm -hmm. You didn't get any deal agreed to when you said that UBC is going to stay in the CIS. You also said, I quote, UBC for the time being is going to be a member in the CIS. So is it fair to say that in the next two to three years, if 
the CIS doesn't do anything, this door gets opened again at the NCA door. Yes. I think that's crucial. I think uh, I wanted to be clear from the beginning that I felt, uh, after a, really a lot of discussion, a lot of weighing, a lot of consultation, that we had to give one shot, one last shot, to really imagining a new way of thinking about Canadian inter-university sports. I was reassured in conversations with people across the country that they were willing to do that. If we discover that they're not and that we can't make progress, then of course we have to look at the best interests of UBC and the best interests of our student-athletes. And is that a fair statement? the two to three year window? Yeah, I think we got to give it a couple of years. Uh, look, these are complicated discussions. Uh, there are a lot of people involved. As I said earlier, there are a lot of moving parts. It's not just CIS. It's what other people across the country are looking at in terms of high performance uh, sport. Uh, and we also are going to be looking internally at UBC, and this is an important point. Um, we're going to be having uh, an external review done of our athletics uh, uh, department uh, starting in the, the autumn, and that's public. Uh, we haven't got the terms of reference fully worked out there. But I want to look at the whole balance of you know where we're delivering on intercollegiate sport versus where we're delivering on intramural sport and just on health and wellness for our own students. We have to look at all of that. We have to balance all of that out. It's going to take us a couple of years to figure out where we want to put our emphasis. Uh, and so, yes, I would say two to three years. If we don't start to see some real progress, some real change, we've got to reopen the NCAA possibility. Scholarship tiering being the main points. Absolutely. Um, and also, um, student, one thing that really hasn't been brought up, I think, in this whole process is student involvement in sports, student participation, student attendance is really the word I'm looking for. Um, is that something you obviously want to see done and what do you think can be done? Is that a fair question to ask you? Uh, well, fair. I know I'm not an expert in it, but I would say uh, that, you know, I, I go to some games and I am struck by the fact that there aren't a lot of people there. Uh, and I think that that is an element uh, that is important in, in terms of generating a sense of con connection for students to the university. Uh, we can do a better job there. And I think that there's been frustration again uh, with the way the scheduling works for CIS, it's sometimes hard to maintain traditional rivalries. That's been one of the concerns, that that could actually even degenerate further. Uh, if you have a sense of traditional rivalries, if you've got a sense that the quality of the game is going to be really high and that you've got outstanding athletes in front of you, I think it's probably easier to encourage people to come, and that's part of this whole process. And uh, last point I want to make... Um and I, I also asked you this at the press conference, is the NAI teams, and particularly men's baseball. Um, you mentioned that this program, even if UBC uh, stays in the CIS long term and it gets absorbed by the NAI, gets absorbed by the NCAA, you're still going to have, quote-unquote, a club team here. Uh, I didn't say that about basketball, uh, about baseball uh, alone. It's, I, I want to yeah. be c careful about that. One. Women's softball. Yeah. Referring yeah. generally, and I know, in fact, uh, for baseball, that would probably be very, very difficult to achieve. Uh, for others, it's not as difficult. Uh, that, when I said that the decision was hard, that was one of the hardest elements of the decision. I, I'm well aware that there's a risk for some of our existing teams uh, because of what's happening in the States and the potential for the uh, unification of the leagues. Of course, there are still ifs there. We don't know that that's going to happen. You know, interestingly, uh, the other side of all of this is there continues to be a lot of pretty negative commentary around certain elements of the NCAA. Uh, just uh, recently, of course, we've seen uh, more examples around football, etc. Uh, so it's going to be intriguing to me to see whether or not at the end of the day, uh, all of the uh, schools that currently operate uh, in the NAIA uh, are going to want to get into the NCAA. I mean, it, it, we don't know. There's projection about that. So uh, I am aware that there's a risk there. We're paying very close attention to it. And part of the uh, review for athletics uh, really has to look at our overall positioning. W what sports are we in? What sports are we not in? Why are we choosing to support some I as intercollegiate or varsity sports, others as club sports? Uh, I mean, a good example that we have to think through, it seems to me, is rowing. Uh, we've got a history of tremendous success in rowing, and yet it's a very complicated sport to place anywhere in league structures. Well, how do we make sure that we honor our traditions in rowing and participate as actively as we can? So there are a lot of questions that 
have to be answered about where we choose to participate and where we don't. And that's all going to be open for discussion and consultation uh, in the uh, autumn. Thank you for doing this, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, that is my interview with President Stephen Toop, uh, the president of this university who is taking on the role of changing the CIS. Uh, you heard it, though. A very poignant point there for me was if we do not see significant changes in the next two to three years, the NCAA door will be open again. Uh, hopefully you guys did enjoy that interview. All right, we're going to play a quick station promo. Friday Sunrise is the show we will be promoting right now. When we're back, Doug Jones. Doug Jones is his name. Um, been in Pan Lambert. Hans Lamberth, Hellboy, lots of other stuff. He's a huge guy at Comic-Con. Uh, he was Pale Man and Pan in the movie Pan's Lambert. Uh, he's going to be with us right after the break. You're listening to 101.9 FM. Are you tired of spending your hard-earned money on CDs, compact discs, I mean, DVDs even, whatever, anything that might be better with radioness? I'm sick of listening to music without any funny quips in between. No commercials? I mean, come on. What about Jay? And Mark. And Jason. The Baird. All those guys. <laughs> now you'll never have to miss out on crazy Mark Farabee. And Jason. The Bear. Paulette. Because the ITR 101.9 FM in, in Vancouver. Vancouver has come up with their, their own label. label. That's right. You can listen to music and never have to listen to... You can listen to music and never have to miss out on the radio-ness. Listen to Friday Sunrise, Fridays from 7.30 to 9 a.m. on 101.9 CITR with your hosts, Mark Farabee and Jason Paulette. Do you want to have your music played? Have your horoscope read or just give us some random advice? Send us an email at fridaysunrise at vanmusic.ca. Or call us during the show at 604-UBC-CITR or 604-822-2487. Friday Sunrise. Fridays from 7.30 to 9 a.m. I am with uh, Doug Jones, a um, man who's uh, had some very fascinating roles in his film career, uh, Hellboy, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, and what's fascinating about Doug Jones, and Doug, people, a lot of people, they have seen you in movies, and you've really been some extremely cool characters, but I'm going to say, Doug, a lot of people, you could probably walk down the street and people don't recognize your face, hey? Tell us why. Well, I'll tell you why, because mostly I'm, uh, uh, what I'm known for is roles that have been under heavy prosthetic makeup. i played otherworldly creatures half-man, half-animal, mutants, uh, aliens, uh, fantasy creatures, all kinds of things. Like when you mentioned Hellboy, uh, Hellboy 1 and 2, I was the blue fish guy, Abe Sapien, in those movies. Uh, and in the, the Fantastic Four sequel, I was the Silver Surfer. Uh, in Pan's Labyrinth, I was the title character, Pan, a fawn. And I was also the pale man, the gross, white, um, pale, saggy guy with the eyes in his hands. And uh, and uh, Hocus Pocus, and you know, that fun Halloween film. I was Billy Billy Butcherson, the zombie in that. So all those all the above titles uh, involve uh, latex foam rubber on my face <laughs> to the point where you don't know my real face, which is great. Actually, it's the best in both worlds. And, and Doug, you were trained as a mime, I believe. I read here. So <laughs> how much has that played into these roles you're playing? Because Trained as a mime, and you're actually able to make it into a movie career, hey? <laughs> well, I started as a mime many years ago. Back in college, I, I was uh, I, I found a mime troupe, and I never I was not exposed to the art of mime as a child before that because you know I grew up in Indiana. We weren't real cultured there, and uh, um, but it, in college I found this this mime troupe, and the name of it was Mime Over Matter. Get it? <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. And I. Anyway, so this mime troupe, I went to see one of their shows and was mesmerized by the the uh, this art form that uh, that communicates without verbal dialogue. There's you know, and find out there's so much dialogue that happens without words, uh, and it kind of wakes up your body and your face and your gesturing, your posture, all that to communicate uh, without words. So that art form, you know, played its way into my acting career to the point where uh, where it comes in very handy. It's handy, it's handy background training. 
for playing monsters and aliens and, and uh, animal man mutations and all kinds of things. And, and while we're on the subject of mime, real quick, though, too, I, I, can I plug a book I have coming out? Plug away. I forgot to tell you about this earlier, but I, I, I have a coffee table photo book coming out in December, uh, uh, and that is called Mime Very Own Book. See, that's another, another pun, and um, uh, it, this is full of, of pop culture and me taking on uh, movie posters, famous work, works of art, and redoing them with me as a mime in them. Uh, so you might find my Muhammad Ali in there in a boxing picture. You might find the Little Mer mime. You might find Marilyn Monroe. Uh, other mime over matter again. Uh, a mime is a terrible thing to waste. Once upon a mime. You know, the book is full of this. So if you love mimes, it's everything you love about them. If you hate mimes, it's everything you hate about mimes too. And it's really, really fun photography and it's silly humor. You know, everything's irreverent. And uh, this coffee table book comes out from Medallion Press. In December, you can order it right now. Pre-order on Amazon.com too. So there's my commercial for the Mime book. <laughs> Mime very own book. So you're Muhammad Ali, sort of like standing over the the Sunny Liston photo. I assume Marilyn Monroe with the dress yes. flying up. Yes, and flying up. Yes. yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say we redid. Uh, uh, oh, and movie posters like The Shining, we called it the Miming. There's also Dirty Miming. Remember that <laughs> with that with that Patrick Swayze yeah. and uh, Jennifer. Uh, uh, oh gosh! More uh, uh, and oh, uh, uh, say anything with uh, with John Cusack. We we renamed it. Don't say anything. Are, are you? Are, is your face all painted white? Like you're all mimed up, basically? Oh, classic, classic white face with black lines on it. A black beret, black and white striped shirt, white gloves. A whole standard mime look. And, uh, and then you know, when I did, for instance, when I did the Venus de Mimelo shot. Uh, I went shirtless for that, and they photoshopped my arms off and put a rag around my waist, and uh, but I still had the white face and the beret on. So, the, so it's just hideous. My um, very own book. Uh, you can put yeah. mime in. It's like Smurf. Eh? You can put it in anything, any word. Um, the the character I want to talk to you about, Doug. Uh, you mentioned Pan's Lambeth, uh Pale Man, um, the guy with the eyes in his hands. Um, that was an amazing character. Um, I still think of it today. Um, freaky guy just sitting there and the noises being made. Uh, tell us what it was like playing that character. And was it hard acting where, you know, you can't try to see through your face. Naturally, you have to just look around with your hands. You had to pretend your hands were where your eyes were, which is what was going on with that character. Tell us about playing right. Pale Man in Pan's Lambert. That was that was really cool. No, well, thanks. I uh, that was that was a creation of genius filmmaker Guillermo del Toro, and I've done four films with him now. He also directed the Hellboy movies. I met him on Mimic back in nineteen ninety nine or eight ninety eight. Uh, he uh, he's a genius who who can draw pictures of monsters and then take that to uh, the creature effects makeup people. Uh, in this case, it was DDT Efectos Especiales in uh, in Spain, and they created the Fawn character and the Pale Hands for Pan's Labyrinth, uh, and won the Oscar for best makeup that year as well. So, uh, it's, uh, it's everything you think it would be. These kind of these kind of jobs are what you would think. Uh, they're a little hotter, a little bit heavy, a little bit cumbersome, uh, hard to see, hard to hear. Uh, you basically become a nursing home patient when you're in one of these makeups or costumes. Um, but when the camera rolls, I have to act like I woke up that way that day. That this is an organic being with all the might and strength of a, of a you know, an otherworldly creature. And one thing, uh, obviously, doing what you're doing, and I'm told you're very good at it, is sitting through makeup day in and day out for five hours. Yeah. Well. Uh, uh, Five-hour makeup applications are kind of the standard time you're looking at when you're when you're trying to become something that isn't human. So uh, patience is absolutely a virtue, uh, and not being a diva actor who's like, you know, get this off me, it's so hot and heavy. Ew, you cannot be that way. You you have to just say, if you said yes to playing a, a character that was not human, you also said yes to a five-hour makeup application. So you just gotta 
you got to grin and bear that one. Uh, but, you know, my makeup artists take very good care of me, and uh, they're, they're always uh, and they're such good-humored people because, you know, think of these people that, that, that create monsters, uh, uh, and, and that, that's their life's passion. When they were in grade school, high school, they were doodling, you know, monsters in their, uh, in their, their notebooks when they should have been listening in math class. So, you know. Are, are you somebody who doesn't sweat very much? Uh, right. Uh, well, I'm tall. I am 6'3". I weigh 140 pounds. That's a very a slight, skinny guy. And we're not known to be heavy sweaters. That, so that, that's, uh, that is a plus in my favor that I don't sweat a whole bunch. <laughs> a key part of the trade. And, and Doug, um, I'm told that, you know, I mentioned when you walk around the street that, you know, the average person isn't going to recognize you. But when you go to Comic-Con, it's a whole different story. I told you you're a Comic-Con sensation. Yeah, well, isn't, this is what's crazy about that. I, 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 like I said, I get the best of both worlds. Uh, like, for instance, right now, I'm talking to you from the parking lot of McDonald's and people are walking by my car and they don't have a clue who I am, which is great. Uh, at Comic-Con, though, when it's announced that I'm a guest of, of, of a big fan convention like that, uh, and these are people who, attending the convention who watch DD bonus features, they, 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 they thrive on, on watching me get in my makeup, uh, behind the scenes. They've seen all my interviews on YouTube or, or you know, TV shows, whatever. So I can't walk five feet there without someone going, Doug, oh, my gosh, I love your work, man, which is great. So those four days, I, you know, I get to be a rock star. And then I get to go home after that and be a nobody again. So I, I really do get the best of both worlds. A rock star for four days a year, hey? That's right. I, I don't know if a rock star would say being that popular at Comic-Con would qualify being a rock star, though. Well, you know what? That's because rock stars, uh, uh, they really are rock stars. And, you know, I, I w- you know as a- actors always want to be rock- musicians, and musicians always want to be actors. So, uh, so I'm dreaming of being a rock star. Okay, I'm not really. I'm more of a geeky uh, movie star. How's that? There you go. Uh, Doug Jones with us right now. Um, Doug, tell us about your upcoming projects. You're going to be in the web series The Guild coming up, and you've got a French movie coming up. It's going to be released in the United States on Labor Day weekend, uh, Gainsbourg. Tell us about these projects. Yes. Well, I, I, I'm extremely excited about both, uh, both of the above mentioned. Um, uh, the Guild, Felicia Day is a genius of a, of a, of a young lady. She, uh, a great actress who, you know, you've, you know her from the Buffy series, from uh, Dr. Horrible sing-along blog. Uh, she guest starred on Dollhouse, and she's a, a series regular on Eureka on Sci-Fi Channel right now. Um, she created this, this web series, The Guild, for herself about four years ago. Uh, it's now in season five, and uh, it's a huge Internet sensation and that, that has been repackaged into DVDs. It streams on Netflix and Xbox Live and all that. So... It's, it, it has such an, an, uh, a life to itself. Well, in this season, uh, the entire uh, six series regulars, the, the main cast, they're going to a, uh, a gaming convention. So and speaking of the convention circuit, uh, here they are uh, with every cliche of a convention imaginable written into the show. I happen to be one of those cliches. Uh, so the fun part is that, uh, my first episode starts airing next week. Uh, uh, well, that would be Tuesday on Xbox, which is uh, August 30th. And then the, the following Thursday, uh, uh, September 1st, um, on MSN.com and Bing and wherever else it's, it's airing uh, that week. So every episode that I'm in will be Tuesday and Thursday uh, in different, uh, different uh, portals. So this next week is, is the first one, and that's where you'll, inter- all you'll inter- be introduced to me as a steampunk uh, fellow, uh, that means everything from top hat, tailcoat, uh, monocle, handlebar mustache, the whole thing. It is hilarious fun for me. I even affected a fake British accent. So uh, and if, if you're familiar with the, steam, the steampunk movement, uh, it's like a, a, a mixture of Victorian-era clothing with you know corsets and bustles and, like I said, top hats, tailcoats, uh, watch chains. And also uh, a, a mix of like Jules Verne type futuristic gadgetry, uh, goggles and electrical devices on your wrist, and steam-powered you know uh, computers, and you know all kinds of, of futuristic things. So it's a mix of, of 
so that it's, it's quite a fun uh, look and a fun movement that's been sweeping across the U.S. Uh, uh, and these conventions are where you find people dressed like this a lot. So, uh, so the gamers, uh, the guild cast regulars are going to come across me and my two cohorts uh, at the steampunk booth, uh, and and uh, so you'll see you'll see all that on the guild episode six is when it starts. So um, uh, that's that. And the other thing that I'm very excited about is my French movie, Gainsbourg, A Heroic Life. Uh, it's a, a biography uh, on the life of singer-songwriter Serge Gainsbourg, who it was a huge French phenomenon uh, back in the 60s and 70s. He was like Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin, you know, to us. Um, he uh, uh, was a cultural icon as well as being a brilliant musician. And this life story of his uh, has a fantasy element to it, and that's where I come in. I am his, I am Serge Gainsbourg's alter ego. My name is Legueule, and that means uh, ugly face or the ugly mug. Uh, and I'm like kind of, I'm, well, Serge Gainsbourg was not an attractive man by classic standards. He had a rather large nose and rather uh, floppy ears, and he hated his own face, uh, as legend has it. So this ugly face character that is following him around and, and his alter ego uh, is everything he hates about the way he looks. But he needs me because I'm also the muse of his music and his art. Uh, I inspire his his creativity. I also inspire his great business decisions. And I also inspire the corruption of his morals. Uh, Serge Gainsbourg had an extremely colorful uh, and, and a life that was woman, women and uh, smoking and, and uh, uh, booze and, you know, just uh, absolutely corrupt. And the French love him. So, uh, so this was a great, uh, fun character to play. That like I'm responsible for that entire colorful side of Serge Gainsbourg in a five-hour makeup application. <laughs> this this ugly face character is an accentuated, cartoony-looking version of Serge Gainsbourg. So I have a ginormous nose, huge ears, and wide-set eyes. And it was a, another five-hour makeup application done by. Those same people, Oscar-winning uh, team that did my makeup for Pan's Labyrinth. So I had an absolutely wonderful time on this, uh, and, and the movie's great too. As biopics go, uh, it's extremely entertaining and uh, and full of great music. It's all Serge Gainsbourg's hits uh, over the years. So so it, it's a it's a good romp. Oh, that's cool stuff. So, yeah, you mentioned uh, the Pan's Labyrinth uh, Oscar winners. So. Uh, who is it, David Marti and Monsi Ribé? Do and, I have and and Monsi Ribé? That's correct. Um, and it's actually interesting. Serge Gainsbourg. I was reading an article on Lenny Kravitz today, just a little blurb, and he mentioned that he's a big fan of Serge Gainsbourg. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I read that this morning. Is that funny? Wow, wow, wow. Well, he uh, Gainsbourg did make it over to North America. Uh, his music played here. Uh, he had a very uh, he, uh, a very famous song that he did with Bridget Bardot. Uh, he had a he had a highly publicized affair with Bridget Bardot for years, uh, and they sang. Uh, I could, the song Lenny Kravitz is a song. The uh, O Arm A Ketera. I don't know if I have the pronunciation. <laughs> okay, that that's good. Did I do it? I, I think. I I, don't, I have no idea. Okay, I tried. J'étais mon mon uh, it was, uh, I think it's I Love You in French. I, I think that's it. I, four four I years of French immersion, that's all I got. There you go. There you go. And they also did a, a famous song together called Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, and both of these songs are in the movie. So it's a, it, it is hilarious fun. Cool stuff. Awesome. Uh, Doug Jones, Doug, thank you so much for doing this today. Very much appreciated. And last question, is there is there a crazy character that you haven't yet got to play that you want to play in the future? Yes. You know, uh, um, I really want to play a classic gothic vampire. Now, I'm not talking about sparkly ones. I'm talking about going back to the black and white era. You know, let's 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 reinvent uh, you know, Dracula or Nosferatu. I would love to visit that. Um, I would also love to play an angel character, like a, a, a benevolent white-winged angel that helps people. So there you go. Those are my fantasies. You came. You answered that one really quick. <laughs> <laughs> He's thought it through. Awesome stuff. Doug, thank you so much for doing this today. Uh, best of luck in your future projects. Thank you so much for having me. There's big love. Awesome.
Okay, Doug, thanks for your time. All right, that was a Doug Jones um, giving us his upcoming projects. Hopefully you guys did enjoy that interview. Uh, I don't know. Pan's Lambeth. I don't know if you saw that movie. He played Pan, and then he played Pale Man, the guy with the crazy eyes. And just hearing him talk, uh, that was a fun interview. Nice guy. All right, well, we mentioned Serge Gainsbourg in that interview, and I did read an article. Lenny Kravitz said, a little blurb, uh, he was a big fan of just what the, the morning I talked to Doug Jones, O Arm A Katera. So I haven't heard it yet. Uh, let's see what we got. Here's a song by Serge Gainsbourg. When we're back, we are going to be interviewing um, Greg Gorman, a celebrity photographer, uh, does a lot of really cool portraits, among others, Michael Jackson, Elton John, Dustin Hoffman. Uh, really, the list does go on and on. Kevin Costner also there. Uh, we'll get into that. Anyways, here is O-Arme Catera by Serge Gainsbourg. CITR is proud to present Safety Show's CD release party Saturday, September 3rd at the Biltmore Cabaret. Opening up will be Sightlines and Do Some Damage. This is an early show with doors at 8 p.m. and curfew at 11. I just be good to me. Don't miss Safety Show's CD release party Saturday, September 3rd at the Biltmore. Visit the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden between August 1st and September 5th to enjoy Lulu Zhang's Zen Leaf Photo Exhibit. Zen Leaf blends Lulu's love of nature with an exploration of her roots and new digital photography and printing on silk in the traditional form of the Chinese scroll. There will be an opening reception featuring local DJs and projection artists Saturday, August 13th from 7 to 9 p.m. in the Hall of 100 Rivers. 
To learn more about the reception, the exhibit, and the beautiful Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden, go online to VancouverChineseGarden.com. Hi, I'm Trevor Lennon, and I'm on my way to the game tonight listening to Wiener's Barbecue on CITR. Everybody, uh, welcome back. Um, finishing off the show today, we're going to have an interview with Greg Gorman, um, photographer. Uh, she was recently in Vancouver. I think he's going to talk a little bit about the workshop. It won't be going on anymore. It's in the past. Uh, 
just a, uh, about three, four weeks ago. Um, celeb- celebrity photographer, um, among his celebrity portraits, uh, there's a beautiful one I'm looking at with Halle Berry, Michael Jackson, Dustin Hoffman, uh, Jason Statham. Uh, really, the list does go on and on. Elton John's on this one. Kevin Costner here with his two dogs, Ben Stiller, just among others. I mean, it's uh, Annette Benning. Um, well, you know, just lots and lots of people. Um, it, it's an interview really uh, exploring some things in photography. Uh, hopefully you guys do enjoy it. I asked Greg Gorman, uh, give me some of his pre. Does he have any preconceived notions uh, when he's going to go shoot a subject? And we're going straight to Mike with Flexurehead after this. I'm not saying goodbye. This is my goodbye. Thanks for listening. Have a great day, everybody. So Mike's going to take over as soon as this interview is over. I don't want to go into a photo session with a preconceived idea or a notion of what to expect or how to basically deal with a person. Um, I like to formulate my own opinions on meeting a person and establishing my own relationship at the time and place that we meet. Cool. Um, and how much time do you say meet with a subject before shooting them? Um, that varies because sometimes I will have a meeting with uh, a personality prior to a shoot years and years ago. Quite a funny story. David Copperfield was trying to change his image, and he brought me in to kind of do an image remake. And so then we had a meeting and kind of talked about where he was going with his career as a magician and uh, how we could basically upgrade it to more uh, interest, like let's say on a GQ level or on a you know he was trying to branch out and to try to upscale the image. So and I've done it with Beth Midler and other people. It's just kind of moving around and and kind of channeling the images, directing them, so to speak, in a different manner. So sometimes I'll have a meeting prior to the shoot. Sometimes we just meet the day of the shoot, going into it, knowing what the objective of that shoot may be. Uh, So meeting with these celebrities, um, really working with them, is it... Is it what's it like being you personally with the celebrity? Obviously, you're very good at this and sort of dealing with these creative people who are then having pictures taken. And really, this is how they're going to be portrayed to millions of people. Has to be a neat process to go through. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, at this stage of my career, I've been doing it a long time. So we kind of there's a, a certain level of mutual respect from a lot of the people that we know each other. Many of the people, obviously, today that I work with are, you know, kind of I don't want to say repeat clients, but they're friends, lifetime friends, people like Pierce Bros. And when things come up or Bette Midler. You know, I've worked with him for so many years that there's an understanding and a trust and a confidence and an assurance that, you know, one, I know how to photograph them. Two, I know their angles and what to do. I know their temperament and disposition. And it makes everybody uh, much more relaxed for a much easier thing. We can start further down the Richter scale in terms of what we're looking for, so to speak, as opposed to starting from ground level. Uh, who are some of the, you mentioned Bette Midler, David Copperfield, Pierce Brosnan. Uh, who are some of your favorite subjects? And if you have any interesting stories of some celebrities, um, you, you know, I mean, I had a great time with Dustin Hoffman on Tootsie. I've shot a lot with Pacino and De Niro. Brando, I worked with a lot. He was quite funny. And, uh, I mean, I've so many people over the years. I, David Bowie was certainly one of my favorite subjects for many, many years. Michael Jackson. I mean, Michael Jackson, for all the flack that the poor guy got, was really was a creative genius and a great subject. And he was someone that would call me up a week or ten days before we would do a photo shoot, and we would have like a two-hour conversation on wow. the phone about what we're going to shoot, how it's going to go. I mean, he, we spoke as though I was speaking to an art director more than the talent, and when Michael came in, we always knew exactly what we were going to do. He never came with a massive entourage. Very easy, very dedicated and focused. Really a great individual. Uh, yeah, the the one that I thought was amazing that you did with Michael Jackson, he had like a tarantula over his eye. Yeah, that was, that was, you know what's interesting about that? Um, that was his one of his pet tarantulas, and I didn't realize this, but... Um, Apparently, uh, tarantulas shed their skin, and it looks like the entire tarantula, you know. So that was actually the skin of one of his uh, uh, tarantulas that it had shed as it was getting bigger. Almost like, a, uh, almost like the skin of uh, a snake when the snake skins, uh, uh, sheds its skin, you know. Um, on to the, the school of photography in general, uh, a question people have asked me really to ask you here is, is it more important to be technical with the way you're taking pictures, or does instinct play more of a factor? Well, um, that's a very good question. Um, The technical stuff, pretty much anybody with a decent mind can learn. What people really cannot learn, which I guess you're referring to in some respects as instinct, is basically having an eye. People either have an eye and are able to 
conceive a picture and understand and, and relate to the idea of, of the image or not. Um, the technical stuff is something, as you know, today you don't even have to be technical because you get everything's done automatically for you. So a great deal of what it involves in taking pictures is having a good eye. Awesome. It's something and that I don't think you can really develop. I think if it's there, you can. it can certainly be enhanced. Um, but, I mean, you know, I've had a lot of students that I've really been able to take to the next level, and I've had students that just, you know, they just don't get it. And you can open the doorways for them, and perhaps down the road, you know, the lights will turn on. That's happened occasionally. But, I mean, generally people either have an eye or they don't. I've seen people that technically are not particularly great, but they've got a great eye. And so, consequently, they certainly can ultimately get it. Uh, Greg, yeah. As well as you know, in, in the world of photography and fine art, sometimes it's not even about being technical in the picture. It can just be the concept. Uh, wow. Um, you, I read that you were a journalist student, so you didn't go to school So for this. So were you really self-taught in photography? Well, I did go to photojournalism school. Okay. Um, so I, and, and that was the only photography course that they offered at the University of Kansas in the late 60s. So I did study photojournalism. But then I finished my degree in film, and I've always only been interested in people. I've never been able to uh, photograph an inanimate object. It's always got to be somebody that can talk back to me. So uh, I'd say pretty much it was self-taught. When I got out of school, I couldn't afford to buy strobes and that kind of lighting. So I worked with fixed lights, tungsten lights, uh, and learned how to light that way. And then my style came, actually, as I started looking at my work. And in the early days, my work, I had the lights right over camera. Everything looked, they, all the pictures looked interchangeable. They all looked like a bunch of postage stamps. Everybody looked the same. And it wasn't until I really started taking the light off camera and making the light more dramatic and creating a stronger interplay between my highlights and shadows that my style kind of developed. And I read, and I actually, that your big break came in 1968 sort of randomly when you took a picture of Jimi Hendrix. Could you elaborate on No, that on... was a revelation. Okay, a revelation. <laughs> then, 1968, when I photographed Jimi Hendrix, was the very first time I ever had a camera in my hands. Tell us about that story. Uh, 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 well, a, a good buddy of mine I grew up with in Kansas, who I did a lot of hunting and fishing with back in those days, was also into photography. And back in those days, you know, 1968, I was a hippie getting stoned all the time, and I got a, <laughs> borrowed, a, borrowed his camera, actually, to go to a Jimi Hendrix concert and uh, shot a couple of rolls of film. And the next morning, I processed them in his uh, basement turned darkroom. And when I saw the picture coming up in the tray, I was totally hooked. I thought, wow, this is just amazing. A white piece of paper, and all of a sudden here's a portrait from the evening before that I had taken of Jimi Hendrix. So that's really what started my career. I'd say what launched my career, and I was very fortunate, was very early on I was able to work with such luminaries as, as Dustin Hoffman on Tootsie, Barbara Streisand on a little tiny little picture called All Night Long, David Bowie. You know, so I was very fortunate early on to work with, you know, and in the early days it was like, you know, if you hadn't shot anybody, nobody'd shoot with you. But once you start to get a stable of stars in your book, then all of a sudden your credibility goes up. That's how it works, hey? You just, it, it makes you look more legit to the people you're pitching to, hey? I guess so. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Greg Gorman, Greg, just a few more questions, and thank you so much for doing this. Um, young, you know, you're doing the workshop this weekend. Young photographers today, um, uh, you know, people love to do photography, but why should people pursue photography? There's no guarantee they could have a successful career. And how, how should a person break into photography? Well, I'll tell you, I would hate to be breaking into photography today. I mean, certainly my work uh, that I've spent 40 years developing my style and my look uh, is not the flavor of the month anymore. And the, the look today is so far removed from basically what I do and how I perceive photography. You know, it's just as, as everything, the times change. And I mean, today, people like much more of an editorial, spontaneous, vulnerable look in pictures. I always go the totally opposite direction. And although there's a certain amount of spontaneity in what I do, I try to go through kind of more of the classic style of the old day of portraiture. But um, the reason for people to pursue photography today, the main reason for me uh, to understand why people would pursue photography today is that they're passionate about it. I think if you're passionate about anything in life, whether it's painting or whether it's sports or whether it's photography, if you have a passion for the arts, that's why you should pursue something. And then if it turns into a career, then that's great. Terrific stuff. And what's the biggest mistake, say, you're up and upcoming photographer will make what's what's the biggest mistake well, the, the biggest mistakes are to believe their own press and that's true with actors uh, i think the biggest mistakes people believe uh, see today is that they think they've taken the perfect picture um the most difficult traits that they're not pursuing is being able to communicate with the talent i find most students have a very difficult time relating to their subjects because they see what's on the back of their camera and their digital capture, but they're sometimes not able to translate that to the subject and make the subject feel comfortable, confident, and uh, 
able to deliver what they want to shoot. So it's just communication. Maybe that's part of our world of emailing and texting and not face-to-face conversations anymore. <laughs> no, I think you're probably right. Awesome stuff. Greg Gorman and Greg, lastly, um, GormanWorkshops.com, and you teach in your own home, I believe, in Mendocino, California. Uh, give us some more information yeah, on I that. Slip- I split my time between Los Angeles and Northern California. I think as you start to get a little older and uh, hopefully wiser, you realize that you don't need to be in the middle of the matting crowd. It's kind of nice to get away and have a little bit of peace and solitude. And I have a beautiful home in the country.